Hello and welcome to the Wharton FinTech podcast. I'm your host Tarun Gupta and our guest today is David Frank, the founder and CEO of Stonehaven. Stonehaven is a private capital markets fintech operating system for investment bankers and placement agents to support companies and investors. Stonehaven is active across real estate, private equity, venture capital, hedge funds, secondaries and M&A. David founded Stonehaven in 2001. and pivoted it into a fintech business in 2018 prior to stonehaven he worked at robertson stevens in san francisco david graduated with honors from university of michigan with a bba he is a cfa charter holder and has multiple registrations with finra join us as we explore why david pivoted a traditional financial services company into a fintech player how stonehaven is building a capital markets operating system to automate fundraising and deal execution processes what it takes to build a successful bootstrap business and when to seek venture funding the pros and cons of being a young entrepreneur his opinion on what makes a great cto and much more hope you enjoy the show hey david how are you doing hi tarang how are you i'm doing well so where are you calling in from today I'm right now sitting in Greenwich, Connecticut. Oh really? Um, How how's the weather there right now? <laughs> How is it? It's actually it's going back and forth in spring right now. It's uh it's been pretty beautiful. I actually was in New York City yesterday and walked home from a meeting and and sat in Central Park and did emails off my iPhone. So, pretty beautiful in New York right now. Awesome. That sounds fun. Even in here in Philly, it's been like really nice over the last few days. But it's always like a zinger. Like some days are really bad. out of nowhere but yeah i think i think you'll relate to that very good very good wrapping up second year of your mba so uh sure you're excited to wrap that up to the spring i am i'm also sad because it's so much fun but at some point got to get back to work right off to chicago yeah so great well thanks for the opportunity to be here it's really uh, a pleasure and i've listened to a countless number of Wharton fintech podcasts and and have been a big fan for years so really it's an honor to be on the show with you Thank you. I'm glad you like it, and I'm super excited to have you on the podcast simply because of what you and Stonehaven are doing. So let me let me start by asking you, like, could you share a bit about your career and how did you get involved in fintech? Sure. So, uh, graduated in 2000 from University of Michigan's undergraduate business program. Uh, a bit of a rival to Wharton. Um, always a, a healthy, respected peer in the marketplace. and i started my career doing mergers and acquisitions at robertson stevens for a, a whopping year and uh i had the opportunity to start stonehaven back in 2001 with a couple of friends and early on i was cutting my teeth learning how to raise capital uh starting off in the hedge fund space quickly expanding into uh other types of asset management capital raising moving into uh other types of investment banking um venture capital real estate etc and uh over time i transitioned directly raising capital to building teams to raise capital to building infrastructure to support multiple teams to uh raise capital and that was sort of the genesis uh, ultimately of what became our affiliate platform which we'll get into um and there was a real point in my career around 2018 where i saw an opportunity to pivot from being more of a traditional finance business to being a fintech business 
and to really support uh, all the use cases that we'd really un- come to understand from being market participants ourselves. So you started Stonehaven in your early 20s. What was that journey like and what prompted you to like go down the startup route or entrepreneurship route so early in your career? So I grew up with a really entrepreneurial father and it was pretty much a foregone conclusion that we'd be, both my brother and I would be entrepreneurs. And it was only a matter of how old would you be when you launched your career? And both my brother and I did it in our 20s. Um, candidly, I don't think I really, knowing what I know today, I don't think I really understood the marketplace and how we'd create value when we first started our business. But I think uh, sometimes when you start things really young, you figure things out and iterate really quickly. And uh, as far as kind of motivation, um, I, I would say early in my career, I was highly motivated to create something out of nothing and start building equity and uh, learn really rapidly by building everything from scratch. And, and then as I became highly functional in an area, then building that into uh, first a direct report and then into a department. And so I think that was my kind of motivation early on and, and also the ability to kind of build any kind of client relationship or investor relationship I could pursue without anyone senior to me kind of uh, not letting me pursue those parties. But I think to shift here, I think my motivation changed quite significantly in the last four to five years as I pivoted. And in a way, Stonehaven's can be thought of as a brand new business uh, that's four years old, um, that we really took a lot of the DNA from our past history and knowledge and relationships and cash flows and, and so on and so forth. But I think my motivation today is more building an industry-changing platform that directly impacts how capital markets function, how they're wired, how investors, buyers and investors interact and, and the role of intermediaries and all the various workflows, data models. And so building software workflows, UIs that stream on how people execute deals is really fascinating to me. And I think it's been really motivating building a highly functioning team and enabling them to reach new heights in their career. It's really, uh, I think, been been fun for me to build a team around me. And that motivates me a lot. And I think curating a community has also been something that's evolved from as we built our business. Communities become core to how we've integrated all of our elements. And so that involves a lot of non-tech skills, non-finance skills, but how to build an ecosystem has been um, a real motivational factor for me and, and really trying to see out all those network effects as we build that. So let's just talk about Stonehaven, right? Can you tell us about what was the origin point and what were the services offered and what has been the change of the pivot over the last four years? Sure. So early on in our, our history, which is not really relevant to today, but just to touch on that since you asked about it, we were initially focusing on how to create value for companies, whether they were operating companies or asset management firms, how to raise capital. And then over the subsequent four years, the, uh, the inspiration has really been understanding how we can create a, an operating system and a collaboration network to support the role of investment bankers and placement agents in helping companies they represent raise capital, execute on M&A transactions, do secondary transactions, so on and so forth. And so that's really where we've been focusing. And I think even as we look forward, I think of ourselves as not just a company that focuses on supporting 
what we call our affiliate partners, those investment bankers and placement agents, but generally building technology and infrastructure to support broader capital markets across the entire spectrum of venture, private equity, real estate, um, infrastructure, and other categories, hedge funds as an example, too. Um, That's really, I think, where we're heading. So can you shed some light on the world of capital raise, affiliate partners, and, you know, for our listeners who may not be very familiar with these terms? Sure. So let me slow down and backtrack a bit. So what is an affiliate partner on our platform? So an affiliate partner is an independent investment bank or placement agent that raises capital, conducts M&A, or executes on secondary transactions on our platform. We are the broker-dealer architecture for our affiliates. We provide all of their infrastructure, their compliance, legal, due diligence, deal structuring, finance, and operations. Now, we deliver that uh, as a a service bundle that integrates all of the tech stack and all of the data model. So if you break that down further, our tech stack starts at the core for our affiliates. We wanted to build an operating system for them where they could run their entire business in one tech stack. So if you think about anyone who is really running a business, their CRM sits at the core of their their business, really running all of their data and all their workflows. And so the first thing we really built uh, after we'd already built our infrastructure was that core CRM where our affiliates could use an open source data model to manage all their investor and buyer data. And then layer on top of that, all of their pipeline management, activity management, transaction management, reporting, analytics, everything around that. And then we've built the integration of all of that infrastructure into that CRM. So that really means that anything that is their compliance functions, legal functions, et cetera, is all natively built into one system. They don't have to have to go across software stacks or anywhere. And um, that's been really the power of what we've been trying to build and then what we've we've built on top of that is the ability for our affiliates to collaborate with each other. And so the way you could think of it is our affiliates can form syndicates on our platform where one affiliate can originate a deal, say it's a Series A fintech deal, just to stay in this lane of uh, this podcast. So they're helping a company raise a Series A or a Series B fintech deal. They might attract multiple other affiliates that run other businesses to help them execute on it. So essentially forming a syndicate and all of the workflows of having the dashboards to identify the capabilities of other people on the platform, dashboards to understand all the 200 plus live mandates on our platform, the workflows to form that agreement with each other, which we call a cross marketing agreement. And then the actual really hard part to build was all of the tech stack for them to be able to actually execute on that collaboration. So having real-time transparency on pipelines and activity and transactions and all the workflows for project management, et cetera, I think has really been what's uh, changed uh, the marketplace for the affiliates we work with. So when did you realize that this building this platform is the way forward? Like this is the, the, the world is moving digital. That's something that all of us know. But what was the aha moment where he was like, okay, this is the next step in Stonehaven's journey? So I'll take you back to 2018. At the time, uh, we were both running, we were running two different types of businesses in parallel. We were running an internal capital raising team and we were doing great at that. We were 
uh, running 500, raising 500 plus million a year at that point in time, we were highly awarded. Um, and then at the same time, we were running a another business, which was an earlier version of what I'd call our affiliate business and had 15 people in it at that point in time versus uh, approximately 100 people today. And what I realized was, first of all, from a focus perspective, I couldn't build amazing platforms in both spaces at the same time. I had to really pick one and go all in. Two, I really saw that our what we were trying to build for our internal execution team was highly applicable to all the affiliates and that all these affiliates, all these independent capital raising businesses and placement agent businesses, et cetera, they all wanted better infrastructure, better compliance, legal due diligence, finance, ops. They all wanted better tech. No one had the economies of scale to build the technology that really made sense for the space. They also all had really great data, but only on very specific investors. And there was an opportunity to build an open source data model to leverage the power of all of our affiliates data. And uh, I also saw that our affiliates wanted to collaborate with each other. And that was already happening on some level. In fact, we were, that was some of the genesis of how we built the affiliate platform in the first place was to enable affiliates to collaborate with Stonehaven on our raises. But I saw that there was huge potential economies of scale if we brought in a much larger affiliate network and that as the number of affiliates, the number of mandates all increased, the the potential for collaboration also would explode. And so we decided to essentially convert a lot of the salespeople that we had internally ultimately into affiliates. Um, Not all of them, actually, interestingly, not all of them converted at the time. Some of them went off and did other things. And interestingly, almost all of them have now either come back or are coming back to our platform as affiliates. That's actually, we haven't even announced two of them that uh, are coming back right now. And we just announced another one that did come back uh, earlier this week. That was really fun. And so essentially, we got busy uh, building and saw that, you know, it was really not easy to build. There wasn't like a template for this. There's not another company that's attempted to build a capital market operating system the way we're building it. And um, so... And there are there are software stacks that try to tackle a single silo of what we do, but no one's trying to do the full width of an operating system. And so in a lot of ways, we've had to figure it out and um, essentially uh, take the airplane off while we're building it and uh, while we're loading the passengers at the same time. So. so I'm curious to know, like, how does the economics of Stonehaven work? Do you charge your partners to your subscription-based service? Like, how, how do you make it work? And what are your biggest cost centers? Is it just the cost of building the platform or do you have other costs as well? So the way we charge our affiliates is a combination of a monthly fee and a revenue split. The revenue split, we have a base level revenue split that scales down as affiliates hit different breakpoints. And then we also charge an extra portion as we add value, helping them collaborate, helping source deals, and in the future, helping them uh, source investor lead generation. And uh, I think as we look forward to the future, I think we also can see the opportunity to scale into other areas where we could essentially even build a tech stack that can enable uh, asset management firms and the CFO suite to raise money directly, leveraging our tech stack where they could integrate or not integrate with our affiliates and that would be more of a SaaS pure play model. And I think there could be a point in time in the, the future where we also could build our tech stack for 
large third-party broker-dealers and investment banks that actually just have shown a lot of interest recently in, in what we've been building. So, um, And as far as the cost structure, it's first of all, it's all people <laughs> in, in all tech development infrastructure. It's people. So we have 15 people on the infrastructure side um, providing that core set of compliance, legal, due diligence, finance, et cetera. And we have 15 people on the technology and data team and three people on our growth team. And most of what we're building has is more of a fixed cost type of a element because the scalability of layering on additional affiliates onto our platform, um, a lot of the, the cost that we're incurring is building all that infrastructure to facilitate it. And we're trying to build as much uh, as many of our processes into workflows and streamlining it. And it's actually a much better product and service for our affiliates generally when we can do that. And uh, there's a lot of upfront investment, though, of technology and data work to go make that happen. Um, but there's there's also variable costs relating to supporting you know all the elements of our platform too. So when you talk about capital raise, right? What kind of funds or investors most commonly list or, or use the platform? Is it early stage VC funds or maybe private equity funds or maybe real estate funds? Like what do you see? What's the trend in that? So today we have over 200 clients. Uh, to give you a sense for our onboarding pace, we onboarded over 110 new clients last year uh, in 2022. And we really are active representing both corporates from seed to pre-IPO, uh, as well as asset management firms. And we're active across venture, private equity, private credit, real estate. Um, in fact, uh, PitchBook just earlier this year in January came out with their rankings of placement agents. We ranked sixth overall across all asset classes, fifth in real estate, fifth in venture, and, and number one in emerging managers. So we're really, uh, for both corporates and for asset management firms, we're active across the entire spectrum. And the way to think of it is our affiliates ultimately originate their own deal flow, and then we're open architecture to support them. And our affiliates are have all types of different specialty businesses within our business. And so our business is to support them wherever they go. And we're constantly adding new affiliates. We added 15 in Q4, uh, 11 in Q1. And so the composition of where our affiliates are focusing, originating, et cetera, keeps on evolving as our affiliates evolve. So my next question is, right, what fascinates me is that you were bootstrapped for such a long time. How was that process like? Do you feel that it costed you growth? Or was it something that was very conscious and you felt that that was the right way to go about it? So uh, when we pivoted from being a fintech firm, I think I needed to prove out our product market fit and our ability to execute. We didn't come from technology backgrounds. And I think that we wanted to achieve as many milestones as possible by bootstrapping. And, and to this date, we've still never raised an outside round. I think there's a lot that uh, we gained from that. And uh, there's things that we lost from that. I think what we gained is that we uh, were forced to be very efficient with our time and our resources and figure out where there's a need in the market, how to win uh, new business constantly, how to scale, how to turn processes that are more manual into full technology workflows, uh, knowing when to say no. And I do think though, in hindsight, we did wait too long to raise capital and we did sacrifice on growth. We didn't uh, start building a growth team until last year. And even today, it's it's not as big as we'd like it to be. And so I think we're, we did sacrifice in that way. And I think if I were to do it over again, I probably would have 
raised money maybe two years ago. Yeah. And so I think that's something that will, there's limits to what I can say in a podcast like this, but I think we won't be bootstrapped for uh, forever. So, so on that note, like what's, what's the next phase for you on Stonehaven? Like you have a platform that's ready to go. Do you see geographical expansion or do you see yourself trying to target bigger or more frequent fundraising clients? And on top of that, sort of, what do you see will be the impact of the market condition on the growth plans? So lots to unpack there. Um, I think over the next uh, couple of years, there's a couple of things that we're going to focus on. So first of all, our core market right now has huge growth potential. So I think we could grow to several hundred uh, affiliate partners in the U.S. over the next three years. So uh, that could easily be a 400 plus person business, 500 person business as we continue to scale. Two, I think the business model we're building is highly applicable globally. Uh, I think the lowest hanging fruit uh, in international markets right now is probably the EU and UK. Um, so I could see us expanding into those markets. And we're definitely looking at opportunities there. On the tech stack perspective, we've built our entire tech stack to be an operating system for our affiliates. And the next step in our journey is building a full client portal next. So the ability for clients to have real-time transparency, workflow, communication tools. And that really doesn't exist anywhere in finance today. So there's not a single investment bank or placement agent you would hire today where you would have an entire technology environment to manage that relationship. Um, so we're really excited to roll that out. And then the next phase is building an investor-facing portal. And I think we can build a real next-generation experience for, uh, for institutional professional investors and um, facilitate a lot of the, the, the workflows there too. And as we do that, that really takes us to a place where companies, investors, intermediaries are all in one capital market tech stack supported by a common infrastructure. And that really positions us really well to leverage that tech stack to expand into other areas where we could enable, say, in-house teams to leverage our tech stack or enable uh, large broker-dealers to run their entire businesses on our architecture and then enable all the collaboration between all these parties, um, which I think could unlock just pretty incredible network externalities. No growth is possible with the right set of people. So next question is, is Stonehaven hiring? If yes, what kind of people do you look for when you add them to your team? So we've, uh, last year we went on a growth spurt. We, we grew the size of our team by about 50% last year. So right this exact moment, we're uh, more focused on, on kind of absorbing the growth that we've had um, and so we're not actively hiring for a role, but I think that'll change over the next six to 12 months for sure. And for your listeners, we would always post on our LinkedIn company page. Uh, and I'm sure I'd post personally too, if we were hiring. So if you follow our uh, company page, I'm sure you'd see it in your, um, in your feed too. And by the way, let me just expand on that too. We've built our team over three different geographies. So we've built a domestic team in America. Uh, that includes our, our management team and senior operations team. And we've also built an operations center in India where we have about a dozen people. And we've also built a team in Eastern Europe doing a lot of our technology developments. So we've approached kind of a, a very global approach to building our business and, and been really smart about um, how we've approached that. That's pretty awesome. Uh, now switching over to the other section of the of the discussion, right? I would love to get your intake on the fintech industry overall. 
So my first question is, since you are the expert on capital raise, I need to get your opinion on whether there has been a slowdown in the capital raising activities of investment funds due to the economic climate. So lots of ways of tackling this. So it depends on the vertical you focus on. So Stonehaven, for example, last year, we raised a billion dollars uh, in 2022 um, with over 340 million in raising Q4, just as deal volume was really pretty bad. Um, so we've been powering through in this environment. But I would say overall, uh, it depends on which market you're in. And let's just for your audience focus on the VC fintech landscape, where if you really look at how bad it is, uh, if you look at peak deal volume in 2021 compared to trough deal volume in Q4 of 2022, deal volumes are down 90%. I don't think that is going to necessarily stay there. I think realistically, we're back to call it 2017, 2018 type of deal volumes and valuations. Um, and I think that makes a lot more sense. I think there was way too much hype going on in our space. and It was over overfunded, if anything. And a lot of ideas that probably didn't deserve capital were funded. So right now, I think you're, <clears throat> as an operator in the space, it's more of an, an environment of operating under austerity. And I think management teams are learning to run their, cap- their companies much, much more efficient. I think that's healthy for businesses. We are in a situation, though, where a very large portion of VC-funded companies have less than 12 months of runway. I think I've, I've read that's over 75%. And I think we're going to be facing a, uh, a near extinction event for a large portion of the market that can't raise the next round of funding. Um, so I think you're, even though there's a lot of capital in the market that people constantly talk about, the amount of uh, capital that's waiting to be deployed... I think it would be much slower, much more deliberate, and much more focused on existing portfolio companies. And so uh, I think that it's going to be, uh, it's, it's a much more difficult environment where there's going to be a culling of the herd. But I also think that'll ultimately make the ecosystem much healthier. And, and there'll always still be companies that are raising monster rounds and doing incredibly well. So yeah, I mean, as far as our own, our own company experience, this year, we have seen it be there. There's some degree of hesitation to closing a lot of deals. So I'm seeing delays in term sheets. I'm seeing term sheets also come in that are less attractive as far as covenants terms that are coming in those term sheets. And so even if you're raising the same dollar amount today as perhaps a year or two ago, the valuation has probably been cut in half and the terms are about half as good as well. So I think it's just a different environment. But it's also, this is the same kind of environment that creates opportunities for M&A. It creates environments for secondaries. It creates uh, opportunities for debt capital. Um, there's all kinds of ways to pivot and evolve in this kind of market. So you mentioned about like, you know, correction taking place in the market, especially in fintech. What are certain segments within fintech that you feel will never reach their pre-correction levels in terms of optimism? And what are some segments that you're bullish on and you believe that they will drive the growth of this, of this industry or the sector in the next two to three years? So overall, I think what we're seeing is, and this is true of both deal volumes and valuations, B2C fintech companies are being cut dramatically. A lot of insure tech has been challenged. A lot of Web 3.0 uh, companies that can't prove real world value uh, I think are highly challenged right now. 
I don't think crypto is dead, but I think crypto's um, in the penalty box for for a bit now. And there was way too many companies focused on building uh, companies in that ecosystem. There's just flooded. I think where it's shifted is more to the B2B space. And we're still very early in the streamlining of capital markets, which has really been very fragmented. And a lot of the manual workflows are still highly manual with tons of room to, uh, to bring those processes online into a digital world, to make them much faster, to bring down costs. Um, and so I think there's still a huge opportunity there. AI is also definitely going to change everything. Um, I mean, you're seeing uh, the majority of uh, YC class now is, is in AI. You're seeing it across the broader spectrum. I don't think it's even clear yet what all the impact will be across this, the entire marketplace. But I think those that have large data sets um, are going to be very, very well positioned. In fact, uh, Bloomberg GPT, I thought was fascinating uh, this last week as they came out uh, with their language learning model and what they could predict. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of trends towards that type of the space. For us, uh, a lot of, just relating to AI, I don't really characterize Stonehaven as doing AI. However, we do deal with very, very large data sets of what People are doing across a large number of investors, companies, transactions. And I think we can create a ton of value by um, figuring out how to harness the power of that data, analyze it, figure out how to optimize best next steps, figure out how to autom- uh, automate identification of the best target investors or buyers in the market, um, and then streamline those workflows. So we're, we're quite excited about the future. For my last segment, what I'd like to do is introduce you more as an individual to our listeners. Mm-hmm. And I have a couple of rapid fire questions lined up for you. Sure. My first question is, what is the fun fact about you that most people don't know? So uh, I'm a dad. I have a 13-year-old and 11-year-old. Uh, I grew up loving to ski and cycle and still love those activities. In fact, I've gotten my both my kids into both those sports and my son uh, races skiing. And uh, getting married this summer uh, and uh, very excited about that. Well, congrats on that. What's, what's your favorite place to ski? Like which, which mountain or resort do you prefer to go to? Hands down, Vail. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in Colorado, so Vail's like my back. Yeah. I was there in uh, February with my brother so, and my kids and, and fiance. What was the toughest aspect of being a young entrepreneur? And if you could go back in time, is there anything you would do differently about that journey? So I think starting early you really lack the experience of seeing how a much larger company operates to gain from those best practices. And you have to find ways to supplement this lack of knowledge by finding really smart people in your industry that are either can be a mentor, people that you can hire, people that can be your friends. Um, so I think that's uh, a real challenge of it. And also, uh, I think if you start early, having the confidence to know that you can really build something, uh, you have to believe in your ability to, to do things and that grit and that perseverance um, and push through endless setbacks. I think it's people think uh, they glorify the entrepreneurial journey and look, there are highs for sure. But I think being successful as an entrepreneur is more about recovering rapidly from never ending hits and, and then finding ways to keep on thriving. And so I think there was, um, Starting that early, I think I, I learned that from pretty much the beginning of my career. On the flip side, I think 
there's an opportunity in that too. I mean, starting early in your career, you, you have high pain threshold. You don't know uh, not to do things. You, you'll push faster and harder in certain ways. And I think it's a balance. I've actually, because in a way, I've been a lifelong entrepreneur and and pivoted just four years ago in my uh, my forties. And so I think there's a lot of uh, things I've gained now from this next step and and really kind of writing the next chapter of being an entrepreneur of the last four years with a lot, lot more experience uh, in managing people, building systems, um, more confidence, more ability to sell. And so I think there's, there's a right balancing act. In fact, I think if there was the perfect mix, I think you'd spend perhaps five years learning how things work in a big business, spend a couple of years being a, a real contributor to a, a growth business, um, and then setting off on your own with, with a great team. Who is one person that you would love to have dinner with? So there's a lot of people I could put on this list, uh, but one that comes to mind is, uh, especially since we're in the Wharton FinTech podcast, is Michael Bloomberg. Um, and I think he's really, to me, probably the most successful FinTech player and the original FinTech player, even though Bloomberg probably hasn't used the word FinTech to describe themselves for, at least for the first 20 years of their journey, probably didn't even use that term. Um, but I also have so much respect for how he built it um, and really retained his equity for the most part. It didn't need to go public to go uh, accomplish his journey or raise tons of venture capital money. He was very efficient in building it. And and also, most importantly, this is also why I'd love to grab dinner with him is what he's done along the way being mayor of New York City and what he's contributed to just general, the, the thought of how to build cities, how to build the world, how to heal the world uh, in a lot of ways, I think is really incredible and uh, just have ultimate respect for him. When you realize that you need to build a platform and a full tech stack, who is the person that you called and decided and, and, and asked for advice? Like, how do I go about it? Mm, interesting. Well, it started actually where we started building uh, technology in-house just because it was something that was we were hiring consultants and thought that was the right way to do it. And at some point, we realized we wanted to not just have technology support, but become a technology company. And I was lucky to find two people. Uh, first, somebody who was a consultant at the company that I was working at, who essentially spun out um, and worked with us very closely. His name is Samir. And, uh, and then... I was uh, really the most important person in my technology journey has been my partner, Alex Brooks, who, when I really decided we wanted to build a full team, I was super fortunate to meet Alex and, and view him like a brother. Uh, I have several other partners who I feel the same about. Um, and uh, But just since you're mentioning tech, there's, there's not a day that goes by where Alex and I are on the phone, um, kind of figuring out what to build or how to build and and diving deeper, super deep. And by the way, since you're heading into consulting, I thought I'd mention something too. What makes a CTO or CIO really fantastic is not just understanding tech. It's really understanding the deep, deep use cases of a business and how the business model works on a hyper granular level. So half the conversations I'm having with Alex and the overall tech team is actually really understanding how something works on a very complex system. And Alex thinks like a, a McKinsey consultant who has a super strong technology set of skills uh, that he then applies to it. And so 
that's the kind of uh, how I like, you know, interfacing with our technology team. And that's really become a cultural way in which the, all of our team works together. Makes sense. Any advice you would give to entrepreneurs just in grad school right now or just starting out in terms of how to find mentors or how to go about capital raise? I think finding a mentor is not easy. I, I've actually found it hard in my life. The best place I've found it has been through a, an organization called YPO. But that's only something you can find once you've already started building a business. I, I would say a real mentor relationship and mentee relationship is a two-way relationship where both parties are gaining. And so if you really want to find that, I think you need to find the best place to find that is probably somebody that you work for or work with or is invested behind you, who has a real vested interest in you, and you also are helping them. Because anyone who you probably want to be your mentor is super busy. To get a lot of their time, you want to be involved in creating value for whatever they're doing. And as far as maybe this is part of your question, but I'll, I'll go a little bit off from it. I think I'd always start anyone who's thinking about entrepreneurship and what to build. I would really start with what problem are you trying to solve? I've seen way too many technology companies that try to start with the technology um, and not with the problem. And I think that if you can figure out how to solve a pain point or, or make an experience much, much better, I think that's a, a real key to unlocking value. Well, on that note, David, I'll let you get back to work. But thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Trang. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Walt in Fintech podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, special thanks to our editor, Rafael Osteria. Signing off until next time, I'm your host, Tarang Gupta. Gupta.